Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, our specialist place and environments teams work globally with architects, developers, cities, corporations and governments, delivering successful human-centered solutions across place visioning, property branding and strategic wayfinding and signage. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life, from Lego to Skyscrapers. Today I catch up with prolific British creative powerhouse, Tom Dixon. Listen in as we chat about how he evolved into the design world after an unfortunate motorbike accident, and what inspires his designs, and why he believes he is still an up-and-coming designer in the learning phase of his career. Hey guys, I just really enjoyed this conversation I had with Tom uh, Dixon in London. Uh, I've been in Clareville in Northern Beaches in Sydney, uh, New South Wales, and due to COVID, we've been in lockdown, so all of our equipment wasn't working 100%, so I do apologize in advance for uh, a lesser quality of the recording. Um, We're improving it, we'll get it better, but thank you very much. Bye-bye. Hey, Tom, it's so great to have you on Design Your Life. How are you in London? Um, well, good. You know, summer's here. We just won um, a match against Germany, which has been a big deal, a big deal for uh, the England team. Oh. And um, you know, COVID is uh, going up again, but, but deaths are going down. So good news and bad news. Oh my God! Yeah. Well, are you are you a football supporter? No, but when it comes to, um, to big matches, it's uh, kind of a, a, a uniting factor, isn't it? Yeah, you get swept along with it. It's a bit like here in uh, Aussie Rules in Australia. It's just like when it's on, the whole country's watching it. It's really cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've admired your work for a long time, um, and I've actually met you a couple of times, but you've met a lot of people when I had my studio back in London, uh, in Clerkenwell in the 90s. And... Um, it was Ben Evans from uh, the co-founder of London Design Festival that reconnected us recently. Uh, and you've been heavily involved in the London design scene for a long time. I know the word designer bugs you. And I've heard a few interviews where you say that um, you're not trained as a designer. But, and, you know, I, I feel the same way. I, I feel like when people call me a graphic designer, I find it quite frustrating and quite limiting. Do, do you find it quite similar? Is it, is it the word designer? What, what about the word designer bugs you? I'm not sure it bugs me. I, I just think it's become such a kind of catch-all phrase for all kinds of different um, activities. And, you know, there's such a big distinction between, say, a, a software designer and a fashion designer um, or an industrial designer that it's very hard to, to, to grasp as a, as, a, as a profession even. Now, on top of that, I, I guess, I evolved into design world without actually calling myself that at all. You know, the, the people do tend to put labels on you. Yeah. Um, but having said that, design's been a, a great profession to be um, to be part of. Um, but you know, I would think of it as, as just a, a, a tool on somebody else's business rather than a thing in itself. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. 
Uh, and you're prolific. I mean, I'm just watching you from afar, like I guess a lot of admirers of your work. And it's just incredible the amount of products and, uh, and brands that you're, you're, you're creating. I mean, what, what's your life like? Is it just, is it, you, you incredibly busy all the time? Um, no, I think I, I must be um, unusual in terms of um, loving delegating. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I quite like getting other people to choose the heavy lifting. I mean, you know, without saying that I don't do anything myself. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of designers, um, and actually, I've a lot of graphic designers specifically, are quite quite controlling, and, and they sort of have to be. Yeah. Um, you know, if they want the best, the, the, the best outcome for a specific project, and they're super expert in their field. So I've not been ever that expert, and you know, my my interest is sort of breadth, really, and and then. Um, I kind of subscribe possibly to chaos theory where, you know, you throw up a lot of, of, of dust and, and then it settles in some kind of pattern, you know. So you're, you're, you're active and, and you're interested in lots and lots of things. Yeah. Um, you start off lots of things and then eventually you start seeing uh, links between the things or, or, or things that, that you can you can use to... to, to um, uh, yeah, to, to design, I guess. So, so yeah, chaos theory is my method, and, and delegation is, is the way that I get a, a, a broad uh, amount of things done. Well, that's very interesting. And, and it's like now you're in represented ninety countries around the world. Um, you're born in Tunisia, which I didn't know about until we were researching you just now uh, in Northern Africa. And how did you end up in England as a kid? Well, my father was English, and, and he was uh, doing his first uh, teaching job after university, teaching English in, in Morocco, actually. And he met my mum, who's uh, you know, he's, he's half French, half Latvian. Um, and um, you know, they they uh, I think you know the, the, the late fifties was a time where it was difficult to get jobs, and you got jobs wherever you could, and um, they they. I lived in Morocco in, in Egypt and Tunisia where I was born and then decided to go back to the UK and moved to Huddersfield when I was four uh, in northern England and then into, I've been in London since I was, since I was five. Wow, amazing. Do you, and do you, do you remember those days? Is it, was it, uh, do you remember the, the change in cultures and all that? Oh, I remember the, the, you know, the, the change in temperature. We arrived in deep winter, you know, in, in, um, in Huddersfield. It was massive snow, snowstorms. So it was really from the desert. I mean, you know, the, the Suez Canal, I remember, you know, and I remember locust storms. I remember um, wow. camels and, and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And then suddenly, you know, uh, the, the, the deep, British winter, so I think it must have been quite a big, uh, a, a big shock to the system. Um, uh, but I think a lot of designers have, have travelled a lot in, 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 their, in their in their youth or, or as kids. Actually, I think being exposed to, to, to extremes like that is, is definitely good for looking at, at, at a subject from many angles, which I think you know designers tend to do. Mm-hmm. Were your parents creative? No, no my my, um, my mother worked for the BBC on the on the World Service News. My dad in English uh, was an English teacher, so no, they, they weren't creative. So you know they were interested in 
in culture generally, but more more literature, I guess. I you know I came to it really from um, going to a, a really poor academic school, which had an amazing um, ceramics department. It was a big inner city school called Hong Park Comprehensive, which oh, yeah. was a failing um, school academically at the time, but but had great facilities, you know, particularly in in the metalwork and in ceramics. And I had a good ceramics teacher. So, you know, if I look back, probably that, that you know, a place I hid from, from, from school in, in, in that department and, and found the joy of, of making things from nothing. You know, ceramics is kind of amazing because you start off with something which is so formless. You know, clay is really, you know, ugly, cold, grey material and, and, and you're responsible for turning it into something um, you know, hard and shapely and, and colourful, you know. And so that transformation aspect of, of, of ceramics are still, you know, it's still magical to me. But then, you know, after that, I guess the, the, the journey was more um, trying art school for, for six months. It really didn't agree with me. Why didn't it agree, agree with you? I think, um, I think I was expecting to find, you know, uh, liberation from, from you know, the, my, my bad school days, you know, and, and, and find lots of like-minded people. And, and I think foundation course also, they, they try and push you quite early to, to decide on your degree course. And, yeah. and I, I had no idea, you know. So, and and I, I think I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to, to work, I wanted to experience my life, I wanted to earn money, you know. And um, so I was in triple choice. I had a motorbike accident and broke my leg and, and, and never went back after a couple of months in hospital. So wow. um, then then I, I started um, yeah, getting jobs. So I was a technician in art school. I was a printer. Mm-hmm. So I learned a bit about graphics and about typesetting. And, but mainly I was cleaning machines and delivering the print. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I worked for, for a year in a in a cartoon studio, you know, doing you know coloring in coloring in cartoons, and they were still coloured in you know one cell at a time, twenty five frames a, a, a second. Oh my god! Um, and coloured in you know, acetate uh, for a year. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that at that time everybody was also in a band, you know, playing music in in London, and uh, I was playing bass guitar with the band that took off and, and so we signed a record deal and I became a musician for a couple of years. So, um, you know, design came much later. Mm. Well, that's interesting, but you were all, you were looking, I guess, exploring different ways, looking for the thing that uh, excited you, I guess. No, I was, I was not even that. I was, you know, I was, um, circumstances just took over, you know. I, I was just finding jobs that, that were, that were, semi-creative. The, the, the band thing was, was really kind of interesting in terms of um, creativity. And if I look back at, at, at those times um, on what I learned through playing music was really the ability to um, be in charge of your own creativity. You know, when, when, you, when you have not had any formal music training and, and you learn your own instrument, um, you make up your own tunes, you book your own gigs, you do your own flyers. Yeah. Um, you know, the beginning of all of that is, is kind of self-determination and, and, no long, and being your own boss, you know, and, yeah. and also uh, making money and, and, and visibility through your own creativity. So you, you learn so much in that process without really 
um, you absorb it uh, in, in an informal way, but mm. also teaches you that, that, that your ideas have got an audience, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's a it's a business, and as you say, it's a brand, and uh, how you package it, etc. How you be in charge of your own creativity. What what happened to the band? Is it still? Did it uh, go on to do other things after you left? It was obviously a, a, a decline and a collapse after I left. Right, but I didn't leave on purpose. I, I had another motorbike accident on on, on um, a week before the first go on, on tour broke my arm, oh. and um, <clears throat> I was replaced by a, a much better bass player. Session bass player who, who now plays, uh, yeah, plays for Pink Floyd. He's replacing the bass player. So I always like to think that that might have been my destiny. Wow. Um, to end up in the bass player in Pink Floyd, but ultimately, I think I might have, have chosen a, 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 an interesting path now. Yeah, amazing. Is it? How did you? So, what did you do after that? So you were, um, yeah. What, what did you do after you had the motorcycle accident and recovered? Well, so, so by that by that time, um, even before then, we tinkered with the nightclub business. I mean, we'd, we'd recorded an album in, in New York in Electric Ladyland, which was Jimi Hendrix's old studio, and and, and we were touring. But we, we, when we were in New York, it was a, a really interesting time in the, in the New York club scene with, with the beginnings of kind of rap. Mm-hmm. Um, music, which was really um, a smaller scene with, with, with small nightclubs. It felt a bit more like poetry readings almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was it was kind of um, the, that club scene that was quite vibrant, but mixed art and, and music. And we, we brought back to London and, and, and attempted a few, um, a few versions in, in London. And so the, the club thing was, um, was again, another self business so we ended up with um, a couple of nightclubs that had stages so that they'd been um, theaters or or, um, or or cinemas and, and they had stages that we wanted to fill with entertainment and it was at that point I learned how to weld and really you know almost uh, started uh, welding and making things as performance art on stage in, in nightclubs which um, it's pretty obscure, but what was kind of interesting about nightclub business is how many people you get to know on a superficial level. So if, if you do do something and you're involved in that scene, um, people know about it quite quickly. So, um, you know, the, 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 the mid-80s club scene in, in London was vibrant and full of interesting people that had their own fashion labels or hairdressing salons or photography studios, you know, and, and were making things and, and publishing things. And they needed metalwork, you know, so I started making things for people. You know. So I, I learned quite quickly how to make things, you know, in a, in a, more, uh, in a more constructed way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, you know, I had a, a kind of network of people that needed, you know, a shop window, a, a prop for a theatre play, uh, you know, just stuff. And um, so I learned to practice. Wow. And where was your welder, welding shop? Well, initially it was in my coal cellar. I mean, we don't have coal cellars in Australia, but in London, it was you know, under, under the street. You'd have a little yeah. tiny little wick arch, which is where you keep the coal. So I started off welding down there, but very quickly, you know, I um, found other places in, in, in Notting Hill, mainly where... Um, 
incredible did you at the time when you're doing that welding and those projects did you ever think that you'd be where you are today well i've never really had a, a, a game plan you know so no absolutely not and you know what starts up is is fun um pretty much hobby um kind of evolved and we were still doing you know night couples still playing music with other bands and there was a kind of i guess a realization that that you know, I could have an idea and, and make something and and people were interested in it. And, and I think it was a very different experience from say studying design at a university um, in in a kind of as, as an academic subject. What what motivated me and what what actually made me believe that I could make things of interest was that people were prepared to buy them. You know, so those people sort of like a, a kind of a feedback loop, which was an endorsement of, of the objects I was making, which is really that people would buy this stuff. And, and I was astonished, you know, something really kind of um, fulfilling about the fact that people were, were prepared to, to buy my musings, if you like. Mm. I mean, they weren't expensive at all, you know, they were <laughs> £15, £10, you know, and so. Yeah, so I got rid of things quickly and, and, and replaced them with more, you know, and, and it was, it was, you know, it fed the flame. Mm. I guess you were you were entrepreneurial from a very early start then, like with the band and then with the welding and the nightclubs. Yeah, I think I, 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 learned, I learned how to, how to do that. But, you know, I was busy. I, you know, I, I was interested. And, and, um, and I think uh, I think also in, in, in thinking in product time, you know, that there's, the thing that's obvious in other creative um, fields, like say music, is practice is, is the thing, right? So I think that um, I, had, I had the opportunity to, to make a lot of things, you know, a lot of really horrible things that I made, <laughs> a lot of not so great things, a few interesting things, but, but, but a lot of it, you know. And as a musician or a sportsman, you know, practice is, is everything, yeah. you know, you do it. You know, you do three, four, five hours a day if you're if you're going to get anywhere. And, and I think you know, I've observed say in, in design school, people are almost limited from 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 doing a lot because you know the constraints of the studio space or the number of points that they choose choose to spring or the amount of materials that you're allowed to use. Or you know, so, so there's a kind of a, 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 a regimentation about creativity in, in in design schools which I didn't have. You know, I had a Easier from, from the get go, mm-hmm. it's tiny, you know, maybe one meter square, um, but nobody's going to tell me not to make something, you know. <laughs> so so mm-hmm. the, the, I was prolific, basically. I don't think I was very good at, at the beginning. I was, in fact, I was astonishingly bad at welding, you know, but I, I was <laughs> really not a, craft, a craftsman. Um, but, but it's really through practice that I learned how things stand up, how things you know, fit together, how materials work, 
mm. you know, what comfort is. I mean, comfort took me a long time, you know, it takes 10 years to, to, to become a comfortable designer of chairs, for instance. Yeah. I was quite dangerous, you know, quite frightened, quite, yeah, yeah. you know, quite rusty. Um, but, uh, but practice, I think, is underestimating design field in terms of churning stuff out and really, really mastering something and to, to, to mistakes, I think. Well, it looks like you kind of went from like welding salvage furniture and materials to working with Capellini and designing the S chair. Was it that? Was it, did that just come about just through people seeing your 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 uh, the various prototypes that you were creating? Well, I think um, it wasn't exactly designing for Capellini. I mean, what what happened was that Capellini, for for those that don't know, was was a, a very progressive luxury um, Italian furniture company. I think the, the, the furniture world, you know, for, for the last 30 years, 40 years, has been dominated by um, by Italian brands mm. and, and um, Italian designers and Italian brands. And, and I think post-Memphis, uh, there was a feeling that Italian design had become very self-referential and everybody was working in the studio as the masters and and Capellini had, had started looking further afield. But basically, he, he came into to my studio. Uh, we'd been introduced by uh, a mutual friend and, and, and picked a couple of things that, that I'd, uh, I'd, I'd say not designed, but that I'd made, and, um, and took them back to Italy and, and, and we worked on them to, to make them into much more production, uh, you know, industrialized objects. You know, to or three um, chairs that he put in the collection. And, and it really opened my eyes to a much bigger world of international design and, and kind of high-end furniture and craftsmanship. Because, you know, the, the Italian industry is, is kind of amazing at, at, uh, at quality um, and product development. So I mean, I learned a lot through, through my interactions with the Italian brands at that time. Mm-hmm. I still maintained a, a studio where I was making my own my own ranges. You know. mm. I think the the, the the difficulty with working, you know, as a as a, as a, as a designer to, to bigger companies is it takes a long time to build up a, enough royalty um, to, to to survive on that activity. And very few people manage to get that approach. Yeah, well, it's such an interesting evolution, isn't it? From from what you're doing. To, to that it just seemed such a huge leap and it's wonderful that someone saw the potential in what you're doing especially an Italian uh, high-end luxury firm like that and um, I guess it's like well, they probably saw you as a bit of a rebel at that time I mean in, in what you were doing well it was Kathleen themselves I mean Julia Kathleen was himself a rebel wasn't you know people initially saw him as slightly um, traitor for, for endorsing uh, non-Italian designers and, and sitting slightly outside yeah. of, of the big club of, of, of Italian um, Italian um, uh, kind of super brands, if you like. But, you know, so we, we, we started up in fact with Mark Newton, first show with Kathleen, and, and Kathleen had, had, had put together a whole table of, of um, foreign designers, which was really Justin Lightson. Mm. Um, and um, and it was it was just a great platform for for um, becoming I guess a, a, a designer. I mean, before that, I 
I, I didn't really even classify myself as a designer. We, we you know, I'd had several shows, but I was doing it in a more sculpture kind of way rather than um, sort of just quite the design, design way. Mm. And did they let you just do your thing or did they uh, try to kind of, kind of make it more sophisticated? No, I mean, the, the thing was... Um, the, I was never a very good designer, uh, you know, working to commission, put it that way. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the best things that, that worked in Capellini were things that I'd, um, I'd made in my studio, had fiddled with, had, had improved, had got to a certain stage. Um, but what you got to, to uh, Italian manufacturing excellence was, was really a kind of, a luxury sheen on, on the thing, a, a kind of a, a sophisticated finish. I mean, that's what I was phenomenally bad at, and that's what I learned through Italian industry. Is that, you know, I mean, I think it lost a bit of charm in, 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 in the process. You know, yeah. the, 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 the British rough personality was probably ironed out by Italian slickness, you know, but um, it, it didn't mean that stuff had a, had a much broader, a much broader audience. Yeah, I guess it had, um, I guess, yeah, and I guess that that was another form of delegating to their people to execute your design with the higher end craft capability. Well, it was, it was hardly delegating, it was just, you know, like I say, it was, it was a real learning curve for me. I was just, just to, to see the pride and, and, the, and the skill they brought to, yeah. to your, your ideas was kind of. You know, an amazing, um, you know, amazing to observe. You know, if, you, if you've been trying to make things yourself, and really, you know, I taught myself not uh, to work, and I, I taught myself a bit of upholstery, and you know, I had a small network of, of people around me that, that were making things in England. But you know, the, the British, um, you know, specifically the British furniture, contemporary furniture stream didn't really exist from a manufacturing point of view, and I think. You know, the, 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 the beauty of Italy at the time, and I think it's lost a lot of this since, is, is really that it's this amazing cluster of, of very specialised workshops and, and skilled technicians and, and engineers and craftsmen that, that can make almost anything from helicopters to chairs mm. and to saucepans in, in a very small way just around Milan, mm -hmm. um, which... You know, the UK having industrialised maybe a hundred years earlier, and, and companies tended tended to be much bigger and, and, and in other sectors, but just didn't exist anything similar in, in the UK. So it's really the, 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 the amazing playground of possibilities, um, which which came from being in a you know in, in direct contact with, with industry. Mm. Yeah, that I loved about about um, the Italian experience. It's it's incredible. Like the, I was just thinking in terms of like the, your influences up to then, and then uh, has there been any particular in mentors or influences in your life that inspired your designs? I don't, I don't think so much mentors. I mean, yeah, influences without a doubt. You know, the, 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 you know because I was never that interested in in designs and the get go. I was more interested in 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 art. Specifically in sculpture and, and, and architecture, um, than I was in, in contemporary design. In fact, I, I kind of hated what was going on and uh, around at the time, which, which was you know, variously there were sort of three 
influences in, in the sports sense. So in, in the UK at the time, Red Chimpsey, and Laura Ashley, very pure, very <laughs> Victoriana yeah. um, decoration existed. Um, and in Italy, sort of contemporary design, it was postmodernism, which, which I, I found really angular and, and synthetic and much more mica. Mm. Um, and and then you know, British, you know, it was it was kind of yucky time with with a lot of Bauhaus, which I found quite cold and and corporate. You know, sort of like um, Bauhaus reinvented for the eighties, kind mm. of chrome and, and black leather. Mm-hmm. So that, those three things I was fighting against with with you know very rusty, very um, very homemade, very rustic or, or an angular, angry kind of punky furniture. And, and um, I mean, you know. As as you mellow, as you start understanding a bit of the history, I've, I've ended up loving, um, start, you know, postmodernism, which had a second, you know, a coming just recently. It's an amazing, it's an amazing amount of creative. Right? And obviously, Bauhaus, you know, speaks for itself. Um, Laura Ashley and, and Chint, maybe not, but, you know, <laughs> I could come back to that at one point. <laughs> um, so you know, but what, what what was nice, like, what was interesting, was, was being able to fight against the establishment. You know, it's much harder to do that right now. You know, everything goes right, um, and 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 it was definitely an establishment to be anti-establishment, anti-establishment against. And, and I think that's that's something that that, that is much harder to do now with, with everything being legitimate and you know everything radical being commercialised very quickly. It's, it's very hard to be um, anti-establishment in, in design right now. Yeah. I mean, there are so many people doing things now, isn't there, in comparison to the, that moment in time? Well, it's, it's, more, it's even, even more evident in, in, your, in your field, isn't it, with, with, with graphics and, and branding and all of that, is that, you know, the, the, the speed at which you can co-opt something which is, um, which is radical or, or, or crazy and, and turn it into something um, which is which is uh, you know commercial is is, is frightening and, and of course everybody has access to the tools of, of graphic design and, and image making now that means that the, the, the ideas really um, accelerate and, and, and become redundant very quickly right yeah absolutely it's just it's just unbelievable the speed and the the breadth and the instant you know the instant kind of seeing this what people are doing around the world. Um, it's just unbelievable. You just you don't know who's doing it, where it's coming from. There's a lot of it. It looks pretty good, you know. That's the standards incredibly high, and so it's kind of how do you stand out amongst that? The mystery, man. The it, mystery. How do you stand out? It's a mystery. Then you became the creative director of Habitat in the late '90s. How did that? How did you get to that opportunity? Well, I, I was running a, a pretty you know, um, complicated series of. Of businesses, you know, you know, by that time I had maybe a huge derelict warehouse in South London, which, which had maybe 20 people knocking out metal work. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, a small retail shop in, in Notting Hill. I was working for Italians. I started a plastic company as well. So all of these things were, were really without any any training in business or marketing or, or, or even design or manufacturing. I had no you know, no real compass on that. I was making it up as I went along. So, you know, by that time I was I was getting frustrated with managing um, lots of people and 
and, and really feeding feeding the flame, if you like. And, and there was, you know, I had a friend that had just left um, and was head of designer at um, had and said, do you want my job? And I said, yeah, sure. I mean, it was a flippant comment. Do you I want my job? <laughs> that's funny. And that's, is that when Ter- um, Terence Conrad owned it, um, right? No, by then it's already been owned by IKEA. So IKEA oh. bought it. Um, you know, had that onto a really rough patch, um, maybe eight, eight or, or ten years previously, and, and it's been bought by IKEA. So you know, I hopped from from being a, a self-producing, um, self-invented designer to, to working for the biggest furniture organisation in the world. Um, overnight, and it was you know, that was another amazing culture shock, and. and um, I think for you know, my client or friends, they found that a bit hard to stomach that I've become corporate guy, you know. Yeah. And um, you know, from being you know young radical. So, um, but for me, it was immensely satisfying to to, to have a complete change of scene. It's like it was like going to university for me. I mean, you know, really learning yeah. so much. Not so much about design, but really about international sourcing, about, you know, a much lower price point, more democratic price point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then many, many categories, you know, beyond just furniture, which I've been associated with, so, you know, toys and, and arts and plants and textiles and tableware and all the, all of the things that you, you get in a kind of homeware general store. Mm. Um, but learning about other things, obviously, of design, but more importantly, where they're made and and how they're made, um, could to be like an amazing, an amazing amount of information that a lot of designers are never really <coughs> party to at all. Yeah. So it, it, it really was a whole other hidden hidden world of you know where everything is, is made and, and, and how it's made. Amazing. And then on top of that, you know, the, the, you know, learning a lot about communication and, and branding and and, um, and retail as well. You know, shops and, and uh, catalogs and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, which you, you get to learn with the kind of you know. So I, I went from um, head of design UK to head of design international to creative director there, and, and in the process, kind of really. Um, really got educated about that feminine and, and yeah. yeah, I guess that would have been that have been incredible um, learning and experience for the whole the whole business of that brand habitat. And it was quite a phenomenal brand, wasn't it, at the time? Um, there's nothing else like that. It, it, it had been, and it, and it had been up and down in terms of it kind of um, uh, relevance, I think, in, in kind of so what, what it did do was, was you know, the beginning was to transform how, how you shop for the home and, and there's been much, much copied. So it kind of lost a lot of momentum, I think, when, um, you know, when, when Terence Conrad um, kind of lost control of it. And, um, yeah, I mean, there was, there was a lot to do and, and it was uh, it's thrilling kind of growth as the idea. Because that was obviously much more commercial than what you'd been doing previously right so that 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 exposure to a far more commercial but still very designed i mean at at its time it was still i remember going to the shop in off tottenham court road it was on tottenham court road uh you know just to 
be in that environment was quite inspiring uh, compared to what else was on the market. I don't know if Conrad stores were after that or were at the same time. No, he, he, he started. Uh, Conrad shop is a you know at that time Habitat become a, a chain. The Conrad shop is, is um, it was something that was his, his pet project for for higher ends, you know, more luxury uh, goods kind of thing. But um, the, the 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 Habitat brand it was you know a, a, a real um, when it first arrived in. in in the 60s, it's been really a transformational brand in terms of how people shop for their home. Mm. It wasn't so much a design brand, it's also kind of, you know, it's, it's really about um, bringing different cultures into the UK, you know, how, how people live all over the world, whether those are, you know, Chinese lanterns or Cuba street days, and just exposing people to not just design, but, but kind of just different ways of life, you know. So, I think I think there was there, there, there was a, a strong design component, uh, and a lot of the stuff was also about finding the best of, of something which might be um, evolved or or, or or traditional, but uh, never seen in the UK. And that, that kind of thing is much harder to do now. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I managed to have a series of, of very exciting adventures by by just creating. Um, creating projects, which I mean, you know, the thing about retail and, and um, is that you have to constantly reinvent the things to, to be interesting, right? You know, you know it's a very seasonal business, it's more like fashion. Yeah. So you know that that, that cycle of, of um, maybe three collections a year, um, and, and having to think of communication and campaigns around around the ideas. Um, was very fascinating, and, and again, a, a really big learning lesson. Yeah, I remember the window displays were incredible. The 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 catalogs, the brochures were amazing. This is obviously before the internet too, wasn't it? Where all that stuff had to work really hard. Well, it's, yeah, it's it's amazing how quickly things have shifted from from that that um, that that way of doing business. So, you know, they must still be. find it frustrating at times being at, at Habitat? Like, was it, could be, it was, must have been quite a, a large organization. Uh, you previously you were used to having your complete, well, yes complete and no. freedom. I mean, no, I think, I think well, at the beginning, you know, people have predicted that I would, I would wilt and die, you know, I, I would collapse <laughs> you know, in, in a corporate environment, but I loved it. You know, I loved oh. not having the responsibility of, of managing, you know, my own, you know, the, the, the finances and the staff and and, and the workshop and, and, and finding the work, you know. So there's a liberation there, yeah. Um, which you know, which eventually became frustrating because ultimately, um, you know, the, the thing was, was run by by business people that sometimes were not that imaginative and didn't really understand what they had yeah. at, at their disposal. Yeah. You know, but um, if, if I had my way. I've worked in corporation two years 
and then have my own company for two years and then be on my own for two years, I'd upload tape it, you know. Oh, that's <laughs> cool. I could have that experience again. I mean, you do go to fail in, in whatever context you're in, and I don't think there's any ideal way to work, but, but I, I found it really refreshing to work um, in an organization where, where you had much, much bigger resources, right? So, yeah. you know, just, just, just the... the um, just the, the platform that you had to, to broadcast from and the resources you had to produce um, campaigns or, or, or produce um, new ideas was, was, was much more superior to, to, to doing it on your own, you know. And um, so, yeah, eventually I became frustrated. But you asked me about whether it was difficult to work in a more commercial context. I mean, I'd kind of turn that around and say that what was amazing was working specifically at a price point, which was more democratic and more and more accessible to more people. You know, I think when you work, you know, when you work in a small kind of craft type workshop and you're making small runs of things, things that inevitably really expensive. And then when you work with a luxury brand um, in Italy, the things are really expensive. But mm-hmm. To be able to work at a price point that quite a lot of people can afford, and to do things in, in a much um, bigger number of, of units is kind of an amazing opportunity, which, which again isn't afforded to that many people in in, in the design world. You know, so so that was great. I guess it's probably helped having. Would you find in Habitat you had more parameters around you than previously? Did that help you in kind of, you know, be able to kind of, I guess, channel your focus in in certain directions? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if, if 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 it's about channeling, and I think it's, you know, like I was describing earlier, it's quite good to have something to fight against. And I think you know, there, there's one thing about being an artist and and, and being free to yourself in any, any um, way you choose. And then there's another thing, which is being a designer, which is that actually it's the constraints which make the project interesting. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to deliver something which is different within a series of, of quite specific constraints. And and I think, you know, as a designer, you must thrive on, on challenging those constraints or, or working within them, you know, because otherwise you'd be an artist. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, I, I didn't find it. Um, I didn't find it um, complicated. Sometimes you, you get frustrated because some of the reasons that people um, use to 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 stop a project or or, or, to, or to channel you are ridiculous. But at the same time, I was learning the whole time. So I didn't find it at all frustrating. And after ten years, I found it frustrating enough to leave. But then yeah. that's another story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess it's the it's the commercial side of design that you were exposed to um, that was really important. And I, I think a lot. I think you said that earlier. A lot of designers aren't so commercial, or even fight against being commercial, um, and then kind of wonder how their business, why the business isn't growing, uh, etc. But you were you were right in the heart of it with design and the the commercial side of the business and. And how that worked, and and why is important to get it all right. I guess that's what's influenced you. And when you talk about Habitat, I go, oh yeah, God, that's how you became, you know, the Tom Dixon brand because it it that was your where you learnt from 
uh, I guess that much more commercial entity, um, but still passionate about design and designing to the masses um, and improving people's lives. It's the, all those products and Habitat were like, oh my God, I've got to have that plate. Oh my God, I have that chair. Oh my God, the bag is beautiful. <laughs> you know, it's the, the whole thing was considered like, I think, like never before in, in one brand. Um, and I can see how that you've, you apply that to, to your own personal brand now. Um, and then of course at another level and you have complete control now, I guess, like that you, you, do you have anyone to answer to it at, at Tom Dixon? Or you custom, uh, yeah, customers? I mean, absolutely. I, mean, I'm, you know, I, I do not have complete control. I mean, you know, I, I, I jump a frying pan into a fire, you know. <laughs> so, you, you know, when I, when I started my, my own label, um, in fact, I, I designed from Habitat and then, and then agreed to, to stay on half time, which is sort of how I funded the, the start of the, ah, of the business. Um, you know, I had, I had a business partner that was working on, on their own in, in the, Building the business, I felt I worked in half time, and then I, I joined the board of Habitat for another year, which, which gave me a bit of, of, of income as well. But um, <clears throat> you know, we, we took investment money quite early um, in, in the business. I um, mean, now owned by private equity, which is a whole other, um, a whole other podcast. You know, that, that we can do <laughs> one day. <laughs> but um, the uh, so, so now I, I, you know, I, I think like like any. Uh, you know, we, we've been doing this for I don't know 18 years now, and and um, you know the, the first the first year or, or, or two were, were really tough because we were trying to trying to build um, a, a business from from zero with with no no resources, mm. um, and we fueled it with um, actual interior design, so, so doing service, you know, fees. Um, and, and then building a, a product brand around that. But we, we took this investment really quite early on, probably in year, year two, and, and so we've been um, first 50% owned and 35% owned by, by, by finance companies. Um, so that's an interesting you know, place to be, which is where actually you're only owning a small portion of your own name. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd intentionally... Um, Decided when I, I guess habitat that what I would try and do would be to kind of have a, a, a designer-led brand in the way that fashion businesses are often structured. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, in product design, it's, it's pretty rare for people. Okay, they then they have design studio, which is called after them. Um, but the, the the output of that, that studio tends to be um, in other people's manufacturing or distribution brands, right? So the, the studio never becomes really the brand in the way that I understand it. Whereas in fashion, it's quite normal for people to do their own product development, do their own marketing, to, to have their own shops, and, and, and for that all to be under a designer name, right? Yeah, yeah. That doesn't really happen in, in, in product design so much. And um, so I was, I was quite naive thinking that I could do that. And it's actually been a, a much, much more complicated um, landscape to inhabit, um, mm. mainly because of the manufacturing distribution complexity than, than, than I thought. You know? So I learned a lot in, in Habitat, but I also made it a series of, of, of assumptions about how my business might look um, when I left. 
based on on what happened to me before. But it, it's been a really interesting, but not as predictive kind of adventure. Yeah. That's really interesting. I and mean, I, I guess, like with any business, it's it's so important um, the chemistry and the and the team that that's like if you're 50 percent owned by um, investors. Is that relationship's got to be a good relationship, hasn't it, to make it to make you feel good about being creative, about being in business by, you know, sharing your brand, your name, you know, your your business is you. Um, I know you employ people, but you're you're the you're front and center as a person and as a creative and as your name, etc. Um, it's 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 I guess there's been so many times that the people haven't got that right. It looks like you've got that right. Well, like I say, it's probably a whole other program to discuss that. I mean, I think, you know, whatever happens, uh, yeah. the, um, you know, there, there's never, you know, there's never a really optimum way of doing things. There's, there's different ways of approaching it and structuring businesses and rest it. And I've got, you know, I'm, I'm testing out the possibility of doing a designer brand in, 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 in reasonably high-end, furniture lighting and accessories, right? There's actually, I don't think there's anybody else really doing it in that business model. You know, lots of people doing similar um, similar things in different structures, but actually doing your own product development and, and distribution under under a design name, mm-hmm. there's very few people that are, are doing it like that. Yeah. And the reason is that it's incredibly difficult, mainly because like I say, of the, the manufacturing challenges in lots of different materials and different categories. Yeah. Also, the distribution um, challenges as well, which is that, uh, you know, everything's in a different size box. You know, if I was starting again, I'd, 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 I'd probably do a sunglasses brand or something <laughs> because everything would be the same size, you know. And, and it's incredible how, how things that you never really consider, like, say, logistics, um, yeah. become the, the, the really big deal for, for, for this business. You yeah. know what I mean? So it, it's a very old-fashioned sector. Um, but that's because, because, because it's, you know, it's manufacturing of, of, of stuff and, and, and it's very hard to disrupt in the way that the music business has been or all the graphics business has been um, or even the fashion business has been because, um, because of the constraints of, 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 of the size also how people buy furniture. You know, it's a very slow um, burn business where, where people will buy tables once every 20 years if you're lucky, you know. If you're not lucky, they'll, 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 they'll just inherit their grandparents' furniture and not buy a new one. You know? so yeah. it's, not, it's not got the dynamics of a, of a fashion business, even, even if I'm saying, well, you know, I modeled the, the, the business model on, on fashion business and the communication and the branding perspective. Mm. The, the underlying um, dynamics of furniture lighting are completely different. It's interesting you say there, there is a comparison, isn't there, with fashion business and, and your business? It's just that fashion designers are prolific because of the, the demand, I guess, of sales and the seasons and the continually changing. Mm. And I kind of wonder. Is it the is it the creative? Is it you that's prolific, or is it the business that's demanding you to keep a reader, you know, creating more? No, I mean I, I get bored very easily, and, and I think you know the, the bigger and and, and and more mature this business become over the last eighteen or nineteen years, 
the more the slower you, you become because the stakes are higher every time you produce something and, and um, you, you're, you're actually constrained from, from innovation. Your collection, which you know, you start off from, from zero items and maybe I have 1,000 different um, uh, references in the collection right now, you know, you have to get rid of something before you can bring something new in. You know? so, yeah. so, and, then, and then people expect you to, to come up with the same old greatest hit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so it becomes harder and harder to kind of squeeze something really refreshingly new in, in, in the collection um, just because, you know, like any uh, like any band, uh, you know, people are coming back to you for, the, for, for your greatest hits, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, you know, the, the hyperactivity, the, the, uh, the attention deficit disorder that I, I suffer from um, uh, conceptually, which is that I always want something new and fresh and different, becomes harder and harder to insert in, in what becomes a, a more and more... Um, slow-moving beast as it grows, you know, it's just the nature of, of, of grants, right? So you have to fight to, to, to be fresh and, and, you know, and interesting every day, and that's the, the, the new fight, you know. Mm. So, uh, I mean, luckily, you can, you can there's all kinds of outlets for, for that, which, you know, which are, yeah. you know, collaborations with, with other sectors, for instance, and, and um, and you know, even within um, what we do here, for instance, you know, what's been a surprise hit since um, restaurants. You know, so as retail dies, you have to find ways to keep your own retail interesting and fresh and, yeah. and, and vibrant. And, and food has done that stuff, yeah. and that's been something which is um, which, which has allowed us again to kind of reinvent ourselves every time. Yeah, I guess in, in those restaurants you designed the whole interior and all the lighting, etc., the seating. Is that where the products, some of the ranges, come from? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I get a, a, a lot of uh, you know an instant feedback loop from from operating um, our own uh, restaurant here. You know, not only to see. How, how your lights work in an environment day and night. You also um, understand how things deteriorate in contract environments, for instance. So, you know, <clears throat> restaurants are a harsh environment. It gets cleaned two, three times a day. Yeah. Uh, people knock into it and, and you know, the, the furniture is used and abused in, in a way that it really wouldn't be domestic. You know? so, yeah. so you certainly get to, to understand a lot about you know, the, the different functions. And you've got a live kind of laboratory there for, for testing out ideas as well. So, yeah, we, we, we've had, um, you know, a huge amount of, of superior knowledge by actually operating um, our own hospitality business in here. But we also have an interior design company um, here which, which also um, works for exterior clients. So you're, 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 you're getting real-world um, testing of, Of, of input into, into what we should produce 
And that's that's is that the the, the coal office in King's Cross? Yeah, I have the coal office. I've also got a kind of pandemic um, concept called Joy in, in Nottingham Hill in, in um, a previous studio that we had uh, about three years ago. Nice. Um, which I've done over the last year. It's also been interesting, slightly less designed, a bit more, um, a bit more um, kind of uh, radical and, and, and outdoors. Um, which is nothing to do with, with this business. Um, the call office is, is a, a, a chef in Jerusalem who, um, who, who we, we introduced into the building mm. and, um, and, and created the whole aesthetic and, and brand around that. And, and, and it's been pretty amazing. You know, the food brings, I mean, you can probably hear some crashing and banging in the background, and that's, that's the chef. <laughs> preparing, you know, for, for, for the lunchtime service. But nice. you get the smells from seven AM and the the deliveries and it just brings life into the studio. So when yeah. when pandemic hit and, and everything's closed, the thing I miss the most is, is yeah. actually the restaurant. And you, you get in there and cook as well I hear. I've been known to do a shift or two, but it's, it's um, you know it's a very occasional. It's tough, tough work. I mean, that's real, real, a real job. <laughs> I just I, what what inspires me about you just have to seem you seem to have just this incredible creative confidence that uh, I haven't experienced with a lot of other people. Do you ever have doubt? Oh, well, yeah, we all have doubt. I mean, I'm filled with doubt. But, <laughs> I'm um, riddled with doubt. <laughs> yeah. But, well, aren't you? I mean, yeah, God, so. you know, I have imposter syndrome <laughs> like everybody else. Oh, you know, not, I wish you'd said that uh, in the beginning. We should have started the conversation like this. <laughs> now I don't feel so intimidated. Well, um, again, you know, we're, we're looking at a series of podcasts to see one, we could definitely see one about imposter syndrome. You learn to manage it and, and, to, and to deal with it and, and to actually to care a lot less about about what other people think, and yeah, you know, I think you know, sure. the battle is really just to stay, just to stay interested, and I do that by just you know fiddling and and and, and learning about architecture and then introducing that into the mix. Yeah, do you, do you get heavily involved with um, your 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 company design interior company is called Design Research Studio? Um, do you get involved in all the on the projects with them? Um, yes and no. I mean so. You know, it's intentionally called Design Research Studio, so that's a neutral name, which, which yeah. is is not um, clearly linked to, to me personally, because I think you know that there's this is very much a service for um, for other brands or other other actors, and, and isn't about me. So, I mean, if 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 the project requires um, you know a, a specific Tom Dixonness about it, I will get in, involved. And if I um, if, if if it's it's neutral, I don't need to. So yeah. depending really on on um, on, uh, on the client, really. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I get I get involved. I I I, I definitely um, am interested, and, and I will sometimes lead it, and sometimes I won't. Yeah, I love how you're a generalist. You can work across a whole different forms and mediums. Um, it's interesting. We were we were. We're also working on a on a on a same project in um, in Sydney. There's a project called Key Quarter, which we did the naming and the branding for. Uh, it's just behind Circular Key and A and P Capital own two sites, and Three um, XN 
the wonderful Fred Holt that I've interviewed just recently in a podcast is um, designed the main tower there. And we talked the other day, and you're doing mm-hmm. you're doing the the main lobby for AMP Capital, uh, which is super cool. Right? Yeah. And it was so bizarre. I was actually. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, it's so bizarre, Tom. I was over at um, a mechanics um, in a place called Brookvale yesterday, um, having a chat about my car, and um, there was a stone, massive slabs of stone across the road in Brookvale. Industrial Park is unbelievable. It's so cool. There's so many people making incredible stuff. So I knocked on this door of this uh, stone shop. Um, I think it's called Stone & Co. And I went in there. And I was like, wow, these guys are making these incredible machines, making, you know, cutting out baths and sinks and things like that. And I was walking around it, and the guy was giving me a tour. And I said, well, what's this? This looks incredible. He said, oh, that's the new reception desk for AMP Capital. All right. Literally the day after we had a chat, and I said, he said, he goes, no, he said, it's a London designer. I can't quite remember his name. Um, (laughs) And I said, Tom Dixon. He goes, I never thought I had a memorable memorable name. (laughs) (laughs) So he he uh, he goes, yeah yeah. His his eyes lit up when I knew who it was, and I said, can I take a picture? He said, no, I don't think I'm allowed to do that because of privacy. But these this. Oh my God, it's beautiful. I can I can get a photograph if you want. And uh, he said it was six tons of uh, of marble, slightly pink, beautiful, beautiful. Um, so cool to see that. Anyways, I thought it was a nice coincidence, a nice kind of segue. Um, and it's so cool, oh, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, good to be in Australia. Shame, shame I can't be there, though. Yeah. Um, I see it for myself. I could, I could FaceTime you if you want. I, I'll FaceTime you down there next time. No, I want to be there. Yeah. Do you think you've designed your life? Uh, no, I'd say I'd say the opposite. You know, my life has been uh, been designed for me, you know, by by external external factors. But I mean, I've had a you know, it's just the beginning in my view. Yeah. And um, maybe I can take more control later. You know, <laughs> when when I finally learn how to do this thing called design, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still in a learning phase, basically. That's the beauty. That's the way I see it. I'm, I'm actually a young upcoming designer yeah, so watch this space yeah yeah no I, I totally can relate to that and there's not enough time is there to get it all done um, well look thank you Tom I really yeah. appreciate the chat alright take care all right. see you soon bye bye, bye, bye. bye, bye. thanks for listening in to this episode of Designing Life from Legos to Skyscrapers with the prolific British designer Tom Dixon tune in next week where I'll be catching up with the Melbourne based and design driven property developer Michael McCormack, founder of Milieu Property. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.